Well, good evening. This is the third Thursday night session. Uh, Robbie is still in the Ukraine, and uh, we're in our third uh, session of Jude tonight. And I want to uh, thank all of you on the Internet that's watching us by live streaming. And I, I do want to say that uh, we know there's quite a few of you out there that are watching and quite a few locally that are watching. But uh, if any of you have the desire to do so, we would like to hear from you from time to time. Uh, our email address is in the website, and our address, the snail mail, is also in there. So if you have a chance or have an inclination to do so, we would like to hear from you from wherever you are throughout the world. So we thank you for watching, and we thank for you for those that are here with us tonight. And I'll just... Uh, Go ahead and get this started, and Robbie will take care of the whole thing. Thank you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started this evening in our Bible class, we will have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that everyone's in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when uh, we sin, that breaks fellowship with God. It stops the ongoing sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and we begin to operate in the power of the sin nature rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit. So by confessing our sin to him, we are <clears throat> forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, and continue our forward momentum in our Christian growth. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to study your word. We're thankful that we can do so in this nation that has freedom, that still maintains the opportunity for the truth of your word to be freely proclaimed. Father, we know that there are many who seek to uh, stifle that, who seek to restrain true freedom to proclaim the truth of your word. We pray that you would continue to restrain the forces of evil in this nation and that you would... Uh, provide for those who would uh, rise to uh, upper levels of leadership in this nation that would guide and direct us in the paths of righteousness and away from uh, the decline and deterioration that we find ourselves in. The only solution to the problems of this nation that are going to last are solutions that relate to a spiritual turning to you. 
Father, we pray that as we study in this epistle of Jude that we might be challenged in terms of our Christian life and that we might come to understand the important principles that are laid out here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Primary purpose for the epistle of Jude is to challenge his listeners to contend for the faith, to struggle for the truth of biblical teaching. The fact that it is called the faith indicates that there is a set body of truth, a set body of principle. This runs completely counter to the whole trend of our culture that emphasizes uh, many different truths and that all truths are okay and of equal value which is just patently absurd and illogical and irrational. But when you live in a culture that ha- cannot find answers through reason and logic, cannot find and have rejected answers from God's revelation, then there's no other solution but to go with that which is irrational and illogical. Jude is addressing a group of Christians in a culture that is rife with mysticism and with all manner of false teaching that is threatening the uh, spiritual health, vitality, stability of this congregation. And so he is writing to challenge them to contend or to struggle for the faith. But as we have begun our study in the opening uh, salutation, he emphasizes several uh, doctrines as sort of a foreshadowing to what he will say in the uh, in the epistle, and these doctrines uh, undergird or provide a foundation for what he will say in this short uh, epistle. And so as we get into the very first verse, there are a couple of things that are emphasized there, the doctrine of sanctification and the doctrine of eternal security. And these undergird much of what he says in the remainder of the of the of the epistle. Now, last time in the previous lesson, we looked at the initial phrase, uh, his description of himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. We looked at that word bond servant, the Greek word doulos, which we often translate in Western society as servant, but it really means slave. And unfortunately, in our culture, the term slave has many negative uh, nuances with it and images that come to our mind. And so for that reason, uh, a word that is somewhat softer is usually uh, chosen for tra- the translation rather than uh, the word slave. When we think of the word slave, we often have images of uh, being abused, images of a harsh treatment that come to our mind, and this is the result of, of um, you know, what we have learned of slavery in the way in which it was practiced uh, in some, some, uh, some situations in the uh, American South prior to the Civil War. Uh, slavery at all times in all history has often, uh, often had these negative aspects to it. But there were other aspects to slavery brought out, which are brought out by this metaphor. And the primary aspect has to do with authority, has to do with submission to the authority of the one who is the master, the one who is in charge. Uh, in this case, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. As I pointed out in the uh, <clears throat> previous uh, previous lesson, 
this concept of being a slave or servant of God is one that has its roots as far back as the Torah, the first five books of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament written uh, written by Moses. So I just want to go through about six points or so on the uh, doctrine of being a slave of Jesus Christ. The first point is that Jude identifies him as, himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, even though, as we've studied, he is the half-brother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was born of Mary uh, when Mary was a virgin. God the Holy Spirit allowed her to become uh, pregnant without the normal uh, involvement of a human father. And this was to make sure that the uh, Lord Jesus Christ would not be, would not have a sin nature, would not have that uh, aspect through a physical inheritance from his uh, uh, father Adam, and that he would be born without sin. But there were other brothers and sisters that came later. And Jude, as well as the author of the epistle of James, were two of these half-brothers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of identifying himself as a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Jude demonstrates his humility and his correct orientation uh, to authority here by pointing out that his authority really comes from Jesus Christ, which is why he calls himself a slave of of Jesus Christ. Second point is that like other writers in the New Testament, such as Paul and Peter, he identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, and this has a couple of different uh, aspects to it. It's not just sort of a stock phrase that was used because that was what they said or because that was what was expected. It had a certain emphasis. Now, as we look at other uses of this phrase, sometimes we find the phrase slave of God, sometimes it's slave of God and Christ, sometimes slave of Jesus Christ. If you were born in Rome at this particular time, one of the uh, worst things that could uh, be said was that you were a slave. This was the lowest of the low within uh, within the culture, within the um, society of, of Rome at the time, there was no one lower in society than a slave. They had no no rights, no legal rights, and they were completely owned uh, by their uh, by their masters. The Hebrew word, I mean, excuse me, the Greek word that is translated here is the word doulos, which emphasizes that a per, one person is completely under the control of someone else. It is sometimes translated uh, being subject, a subject of someone, a servant of someone, but only in the sense that they are completely under that other person's uh, authority or completely under that person's uh, control. And this is the idea when it's used in relationship to God that we as a a servant of God or completely under the authority of God. This is how it's used in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 14, uh, 31, Moses refers to him, or Moses is referred to as the servant of the Lord, that he, uh, 
Israel is spoken of here. Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And then in uh, Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, Moses is identified as the servant of the Lord. And the Hebrew word avad has a wide range of meaning. It can mean a worker. It can mean someone who is a servant, or it can also have that idea of being a slave. Whereas the Greek word, the Greek word doulos has more to do with being a slave and being completely under uh, the authority of someone else. It often uh, it sort of amuses me that uh, one of the aberrations that we'll look at a little bit later in our study, one of the aberrations of, of the gospel today is called lordship salvation, and it seems like it sells better if you're emphasizing the lordship of Christ than the slavery of people. But that's really where the emphasis is, is if you are not completely committed. Now, isn't that a nice word? If you're not completely committed to the authority of the Lord, then you can't be saved. That's that it really it should be called slavery salvation, not Lordship salvation, and we don't reach a point where we recognize or fully recognize the authority of Christ in our life till sometime after we're saved, sometime in our spiritual growth and our uh, uh, spiritual experience. So the key idea in the word for slave is the word doulos, emphasizing being under someone else's total control, completely subordinate to their authority, direction, and control in our life. And so the emphasis in the word is on voluntary servitude, that we're placing ourselves voluntarily under the authority of God. And that only comes as we grow as believers, because initially we're just thankful that we're saved. We recognize that Jesus is God. We recognize a measure of his authority, perhaps, or maybe not, But as we begin to grow as believers, we begin to realize that the real issue here is, are we going to obey God or are we going to do things our our own way? So the emphasis in the word is on voluntary uh, servitude or putting uh, ourselves in the place of one who is in, uh, in authority. In the Old Testament... Uh, Slavery was not a permanent status unless an individual volunteered to do so. Uh, What we think of as as indentured servitude is mostly what the idea of slavery uh, was like in the Old Testament. It was a voluntary status that at the end of seven years or when the seventh year, the sabbatical year came, all the slaves were free. However, if a person, for whatever reason, usually economic, uh, did not think that they could really handle the responsibilities of being free, then they could voluntarily uh, enter into a permanent state of slavery. And this would be indicated by uh, piercing their ear with an awl. A small uh, uh, wooden or metal uh, object would then be used to pierce the ear, and that would indicate that that person was uh, uh, in voluntary servitude and this is explained in uh, Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, as well as Deuteronomy 15, verse uh, 17, so that the emphasis is one on the uh, authority position. The emphasis is on the authority of Christ and our willing submission uh, to him. 
And this is how this word is used, especially in relation to the apostles. In Romans 1.1, Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 1.1, Peter calls himself a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. In James 1.1, James, the other half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who wrote a New Testament epistle, calls himself James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the third point is that being a slave of Jesus means total loyalty to Jesus. It emphasizes the idea of a focus, a submission to his authority, a loyalty to him, and serving him however he calls us to serve him. This is the idea that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, where he states, For do I now persuade men or God? In other words, am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Uh, then he says, For if I still pleased men, I would not be a slave of Christ. So it has to do with complete loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, not out to gain human favor or human recognition, but to perform the task, the mission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. The fourth point, one I've alluded to already, a slave was the lowest level of society. The term doulos was the most servile term available in Greek for the idea of slavery or being a servant. Another word that is used was diakonos, where we get our English word deacon, and in contrast to diakonos, uh, the slave was was uh, completely subordinate, had no rights, no position whatsoever, but a diakonos was seen as someone who who was serving others. So it was a little further up up the social scale. And then as I, part of what I pointed out already, being a slave of Christ was a common designation for the disciples and more committed believers in the first century. Passages such as Acts 4.29, uh, in a <clears throat> prayer, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with, that with all boldness they may speak your word. This is after Peter and John had been arrested and had been tried before the Sanhedrin and released. This is their prayer that God would grant to those who were committed followers, slaves of him, that with all boldness they may speak your word. First uh, Corinthians 7.23 also speaks of, of, of Christians as slaves of God, says you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Now, this is typical of the Apostle Paul because he will contrast this with the fact that as believers we are to be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is seen in one of the most significant passages that we have related to this whole topic, and that's in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 lays the foundation for the believer's spiritual life. So I want you to turn with me, keep your place in Jude, but we're going to spend just a little bit of time in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now just as a reminder, so you uh, have the context in mind here, remember in the epistle to Romans, the apostle Paul is basically showing how the righteousness of God relates to his creation. In the first uh, three chapters, 
The focus is on man failing to live up to the righteous standard of God. Initially, you have the uh, the immoral man in the last part of chapter 1 who does not live up to the righteousness of God. Then Paul demonstrates in the first uh, four verses of Romans 2 that the righteous man, uh, the moral man rather, does not live up to the righteous standard of God. And then starting in uh, Romans 2, uh, 5 and 6, he begins to uh, show how the Jews under the authority of the Mosaic law still do not measure up to the righteous standard of God. Its conclusion being that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 4 explains the only way to be righteous is through justification. Romans 5 uh, focuses on the benefits of that justification in terms of our relationship to God, that we are at peace with God, and a transition to now that we are justified, how is a justified uh, Christian supposed to live before God? And this is the focus of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. These are the great sanctification chapters of the New Testament. There are others. Uh, if, uh, many of the epistles are also written to explain the Christian life or experiential sanctification. Every verse in Scripture, every passage, every epistle focuses on one of two things, either how to be saved or justified or how a justified person is supposed to live in terms of their experiential sanctification. And so we know from looking at the epistle of Jude that the focus there is on how a sanctified person is to defend the faith and stand true to the word of God. So Romans chapter 6 addresses the issue of how is a, how is a justified person supposed to live. And Paul begins, uh, just to pick up the initial context, with a rhetorical question, one that Many people have asked over the years, and one of the greatest problems that we've seen throughout the history of Christianity is that Christians just don't know what to do with people who claim to be Christians and still sin. It's that post-salvation sin that many uh, theologians and many Christians have had trouble dealing with simply because they don't properly understand grace. And after Paul's explanation of the fact that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, that we bring nothing to the table, that we bring nothing to salvation that is all by by the work of Christ on the cross, then a obvious question that have been asked has been asked by many people is, well, if, if Jesus did everything for us to be saved, then what in the world is to keep us from just living any way we want to? And the short answer to that is divine discipline. God is going to bring divine discipline into our life. But the long answer is what Paul gives in Romans 6 through 8, is we're saved for a purpose. We're saved for a purpose not just to get into heaven, but to represent God to the world and to angels, and we have a mission. So he begins Romans 6 with a rhetorical question. What should we say then? I mean, in light of the fact that we have been saved, we've been uh, that that our salvation is not based on anything that we do. If we got so much just by uh, trusting in God and and responding to His grace, why not sin more so we can get more grace? That's his point. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he responds with one of the strongest 
uh, ways to say no in Greek. He says, Meganoita, uh, or may it never be, not at all. How shall we who die to sin live in it anymore? And this is his point, is that you have to recognize as a believer that there was something that happened that you didn't really experience, you didn't feel anything at the time, but when you trusted Christ as your Savior at that instant, the power of the sin nature was broken. You became dead to sin because of your new position, your new identification with Jesus Christ. As a new creature in Christ, we are all dead to sin. That's his answer in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then he makes the point. He says, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, baptism is not necessarily water baptism. There are eight different kinds of baptism in the New Testament. Only three are ritual baptisms where the person gets wet. The other four are dry baptisms. And the significance of a baptism is to identify someone with something else. For example, in the um, ancient uh, Greek culture, back in the 5th century B.C., during the times of classic Greek, uh, and when a soldier had completed his basic training, he, as a sign that he was ready to go to war, he would take his spear and he would dip it into a uh, some sort of uh, bucket or vessel of pig's blood, which is identifying his weapon with blood and with death. It, it's a symbol of identification. So here in, in Romans 6.3, we're not talking about we're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about being identified and united with Christ in his death. He goes, Paul goes on to say in verse 4, Therefore, the conclusion from that is that we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The death of Christ on the cross is related to the payment for sin, which solves the sin penalty. The resurrection of Christ is always associated with the new life that a believer has in Christ. There has been a separation from all that was before, which is why Paul uh, at times refers to that as the old man, that which we were before we were saved when we lived only according to the, only according to the sin nature. He goes on to say in verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the reason it's stated in a potential is because not every believer is going to make the choice after salvation to continue to pursue spiritual growth. Not every believer is going to exploit the assets that Jesus Christ gives us at salvation to grow to spiritual maturity. That is a potential, and that potential is only realized by our individual decisions. But it's based on knowing something, and you only really come to know these things after salvation. They're not known at the instant of salvation. And so verse 6, which is an extremely important verse in this whole uh, development of Paul's argument, 
actually starts with a causal participle, should be translated, because we know this. Uh, The spiritual life is always grounded upon knowledge of God's revelation. Because we know this, that our old man was crucified with him. Old man here referring to all that we were before we were saved. There is a death, a separation from that old lifestyle, which was dominated by the sin nature. The old man was crucified with him for the purpose that, or the result that, the body of sin, this is a term that refers to the sin nature, the body of sin might be done away with. Now, we don't lose a sin nature when we are saved. We still have the same old nasty sin nature that just is capable of doing everything that it did before we were saved, after we're saved. Uh, it still has all the potential to all the evil that uh, and all the disobedience to God that we had before. It's just that now its power, its authority is broken, and we are no longer under its authority. This is what Paul develops in the next few verses. In verse 7 he says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. He who has died has been freed from sin. It is a perfect uh, tense Verb there indicating completed action. It was completed at the instant of salvation, and that power of the sin nature was broken so that now we are free from sin. It doesn't mean we don't sin because, as Paul goes on to develop here, uh, we still continue to sin, but that's because we now make a choice to put ourselves back under the authority of that um, slave master, the sin nature. Verse 8, Paul says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's our foundation. We believe we died with Christ. That's a separation from the old life prior to salvation. We also believe that we shall live with him in the future. Because of resurrection, there is new life. And the basis for this, verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, Death no longer has dominion or ruling power over him. Uh, Then he explains it in verse 10, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So the life that he lives, he lives to God. That is a focus now. We're shifting to, to that role of service to God that comes as a result of death to sin. Then he makes the comparison, verse 11. Likewise, you all, and here we have a present imperative form of the word logizomai. It's the same word we, that is in other contexts translated uh, imputation. It is a word that is related to the noun logos for word, also where we get our English word logic. So it is word related to reason. It is a word related to thinking. And so that's why in the King James it translates it, reckon yourselves to be dead. Reckon is a, is a somewhat antiquated term for thinking. Come to a conclusion. Having understood all of the facts in the previous ten verses, we are now to come to a conclusion. It's a command that is to be the dominant characteristic of our thinking. That's the focus of a present imperative. It sets a, a context. We're to reckon ourselves dead to sin. That means there's a separation. This isn't legalism. Some people get the crazy idea that legalism means 
that uh, as when you tell Christians not to do something or to do something, that's legalism. Legalism is the idea that if I do things or don't do things, if I'm obedient or disobedient to certain mandates or prohibitions, then what that uh, then that is what gains blessing and favor with God. There's a difference. I can I can say you need to read your Bible every day, and if it's legalism, I'm saying that you need to read your Bible every day, or God won't ever bless you, and you're just a a failure in the Christian life, and you can never uh, ever do anything uh, positive in your Christian life. You may even lose your salvation. That would be legalism. If I say you need to read your Bible every day because you need to be informed about who God is and what he's done for us and what has happened in the Scripture and that this is part of just being generally informed of uh of what God, who God is and what he's done for you, then that's not legalism because I'm not tying anything to that as a, as salvation or as something that is, uh, that is necessary to gain God's approval. We already have God's approval by the imputation of righteousness. So then Paul says in verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Again, this is a command not to continue to sin. Now, of course, we do, but the standard is don't continue to sin. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin be the dominant authority in your life. Notice how these ideas of authority now have been brought in. Is your authority going to be the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, or is your authority going to be the sin nature, and the lust patterns of the sin nature. Then verse 13, he goes on again with a third present imperative. Don't present your your members, that is the members of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but, and then he has an aorist imperative here emphasizing prior, uh, priority and emphasizing uh, in the immediate necessity, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then verse 14, the explanation why? For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Now there's that idea of dominion again. Who is the authority in your life? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ in his word or is it the sin nature? Now all of that is just the introduction to his use of the terms, uh, term slavery. Now he develops this in verse 15. He says, what then? Second rhetorical question following the initial ones in ver- the first two verses. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? In other words, is grace an excuse to sin? Now, some people use it that way, but that's only because they're spiritual babies. Spiritual babies always use their freedom as a way to uh, just justify doing whatever they want to do because the basic orientation, the sin nature, is just self-absorption and doing what I want to do and not what anybody else wants me me to do. In verse 16, he expands that, and he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, this is the key verse here. Let me put this up on the, uh, up on the screen. Notice he uses the term slaves three times in verses 16 and 17. 
So he phrases this in a question. Don't you understand this? When we obey our sin nature, we're saying to the sin nature, you're the boss. I am going to submit to your authority. When we are obedient to the Lord and applying Scripture, we're saying to the Lord, you are the boss. I'm submitting to your authority. The issue is me, my volition, your volition. Whenever we are walking according to the sin nature, we are voluntarily putting ourselves in a position as a slave to the sin nature. We're saying, sin nature, you're my boss. That's his, that's his point in verse 16. Don't you know that to whom you present yourself, a slave to obey, you are the slave of the one you obey. So you're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to your sin nature. What do they both have in common? You're a slave. Whether you like it or not, no matter how free you think you are, you're not. This is a point that Jesus was making to the Pharisees when they were claiming that they were free, and he made, makes the point that they're, they're, they're not free. They are slaves to sin. And so we are as well as believers whenever we choose to, to uh, sin. And one, path, one choice leads one way, and the other choice leads another way. Whether of sin, it leads to death. When we say to the sin nature, I'm obeying you, the end result of that is death, not eternal death. It's not talking about eternal condemnation. Remember, Paul's already talking to believers. It leads to death in the sense of carnal death or temporal death in the sense that our life is useless, worthless, and it is non-productive in terms of anything for God or anything of eternal value, and it will lead to self-destruction and it will lead to self-induced misery and self-destruction if we continue down the path of disobedience to God and obeying the sin nature. The other option is obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, this isn't justification righteousness, because that is the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us. But if we are walking in obedience to the uh, Scripture, we're walking by the Holy Spirit, then what is produced in us is an experiential righteousness. And this is the whole idea of sanctification, the idea of growing and being more u- more usable by God in serving God in terms of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. That's the idea of, ex- of being experientially sanctified or experientially set apart to the service of God. And we'll get into that doctrine of sanctification in just a little bit. This is a good introduction and foundation for that. So we're either going to make a choice to be a slave to the sin nature, which is going to lead to uh, divine discipline. It will lead to carnal death. It may lead to the sin unto death. Or we're going to choose to obey the Scripture, obey Christ, which will lead to the development of experiential uh, righteousness and blessing in our life. So verse 17, Paul then says, But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, which we all were prior to salvation because there's no other option. 
There's no new nature. The only nature is the sin nature, so the only option is to obey the sin nature, and that can produce either uh, relative good or uh, relative evil, but it all comes from the sin nature. God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And that form of doctrine refers to the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when we trust in Christ, we become a new creature. And as part of being a new creature, there are new options, which we did not have before. The options to obey God, to walk by the Spirit, because we now have the indwelling and the filling of the Spirit. And then we can move in the direction of life. Though we were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And then we get to verse 18, and having been set free from sin, so at salvation we're set free from the power, the authority, the mastery of sin, the sovereignty of sin. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we only have two options, slaves of sin, slaves of righteousness. So at salvation, our identity changed, and part of what that package we get at salvation, those things that happen to every single believer at the instant of salvation, we get a new master, we get a new relationship to God, and we are now a slave of righteousness. And then in verse 19, Paul is going to talk in terms of an analogy and, and, and state that he speak using this in terms of an analogy. He says, I speak in a, in a human way, human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh, that is, because of the weakness of the sin nature. He, and then he explains, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. This is a great pathology of the sin nature here. We are slaves of the sin nature, which leads to uncleanness, which leads to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness. Um, now we are to present our members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And this is the word for sanctification. So how do we, how are we experientially sanctified? By uh, first of all, we, when we, if we've been out of fellowship, we need to confess our sins, to return to fellowship, and then walk by the Spirit, which here is expressed as presenting our members, our bodies, our life as a slave of righteousness for experiential sanctification. Then in verse 20, he goes on to explain that when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. When we're slaves to sin, there's no, no righteousness. All is unrighteousness. Same thing that Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our works of, of righteousness are as filthy rags. Verse 21, he says, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That is the end result of that is carnal death. He's not talking about about uh, eternal death anywhere in here. He's talking to believers and whether or not they're going to present their lives to Christ for obedience to life or disobedience leading to what? Death, carnal death, uh, temporal, uh, temporal death in the sense of no spiritual vitality, no enduring fruit, nothing that has eternal value. 
And then verse 22, but now, having been set free from sin, because this happened positionally at salvation, and having become slaves of God, that happened positionally at salvation, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end everlasting life. Now, this this everlasting life here is not talking about eternal life in the sense of never-ending life that we get at salvation, but it is the result of experiential sanctification. It is more the fullness of life and the full experience of our eternal life. It's what Jesus said in John 10.10. He came not to uh, steal and destroy, but to give life. That's eternal life, phase one, never-ending life in heaven, and to give life abundantly. That is the result of phase two experiential growth. And then in verse 23, note the context here. This is a verse that's typically used by many people. I've used it. Many others have used it as a salvation, phase one salvation verse. But the context here is that this is really a phase two verse for the wages of sin. This is sin in the life of the believer who gives himself as a slave to sin. The wages of sin is death. That's not eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. That is carnal death and the consequences of that in this life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not eternal life, again, in the sense of not going to hell or not going to the lake of fire. This is the fullness, the full experience of that abundant life which Christ gave us. Now, this exposition of slavery that Paul gives in Romans 6 is the background to understanding all the passages in the New Testament that relate to being a slave of Jesus Christ. It's positional sanctification, but also it is because of our position as being a slave of Christ, we are to experientially become slaves of Christ. So this is what Jude is emphasizing. He is a bondservant. He is a slave of Christ. He has recognized that Christ is his authority. And so because of that, he is growing to spiritual maturity, but also because when he writes, when he uh, writes, he has the authority of Christ behind him because he is a slave of Christ. And then he identifies himself, as we've seen before, as as a as the brother of James, he doesn't identify the James here any further, and uh, so this can only be one James, one prominent James that we have in the New Testament, and that would be James, uh, the half brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two significant individuals named James. There were others, but the two most significant were James, the brother of John. Uh, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, called the sons of thunder. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, is the only other early Christian leader who was uh, uh, just simply referred to as James without any further need of identification. And he was martyred uh, early on in, in, in the book of Acts. Um, Jude uses this phrase to identify himself. Uh, by referring to his more famous and more well-known brother, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, 
became the foremost leader in the Jerusalem church, and so he would be very, very uh, well known by that, uh, by that name. So he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a uh, brother of James. And then in verse, um, verse 2, he says, to those who are called, and then there's a textual problem here, to those who are called, sanctified uh, by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. You'll find that reading if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version. If you're using New American Standard, New International Version, English Standard Version, it reflects the uh, the wording that's found in the crit- critical text and some of the older manuscripts. And there it's the word beloved. There's not a lot of difference between these the two words as they appear in Greek, which would indicate why it might be easy for uh, a transcriber to have easily uh, misread the word and written down one or the other. The challenge, of course, is to find uh, which one is the the most likely uh, <clears throat> one to read. The Textus Receptus, which is the back the manuscript group used for the King James Version, New King James Version, have the word sanctified. Uh, the critical text has the word beloved. And over the years, there have been various uh, discussions about this. The uh, Usually, the critical text looks at uh, three or four of the oldest manuscripts. And if, if that, a reading is found in one or more of those, they almost always go with that under the idea that older is better. But many times there is a better reading in the majority text, which as the term is identified, sometimes it's called the Byzantine text because it was mostly found in those those um, um, uh, manuscripts found in the Byzantine area, the, Byz- the Greek, Greece, Turkey, that particular area, the older manuscripts were found in North Africa, Egypt specifically, and that area was more prone to, to heresy. And that affects some readings uh, because it's a drier climate. Older manuscripts were preserved longer. So we have Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus are your three main uncials there that are usually usually emphasized. I have a tendency to go with the majority text reading, and I would uh, uh, go mo- most likely with the sanctified as the uh, primary uh, meaning here uh, in verse 2, to those who are called sanctified. I think there is logically a consistent um, a correlation between the idea of being called uh, by God the Father, uh, this is also a perfect tense. Uh, both sanctified and beloved, of course, are perfect tense, as well as sanctified and preserved. I think those three ideas go together, but a case can equally be made, I think, for using beloved, so it's not a hard and fast case. Um, I, I just uh, tend to go with the majority text. It's uh, 
It's not as clear in this particular case from the manuscript evidence and as well as the internal evidence. I think a strong case could be made for either one, both of which are true and both of which are stated uh, many times, so it doesn't affect any major, uh, any major doctrine. I do believe, though, that sanctify is the superior uh, reading and the most likely uh, one here. So this is talking about being uh, sanctified. It's a perfect passive participle. Both beloved and sanctified are perfect passive participles. And so this emphasizes completed action, something that was accomplished at the instant of salvation with results that go on uh, without, uh, without end. And it is of the word hagiadzo, which means to make holy, to sanctify. These are words that seem somewhat antiquated to us today. The basic idea in the word hagiadzo is to be set apart to the service of a god or a deity. It's based on the Hebrew idea of the word kadash, or the noun, or excuse me, the verb kadash or the noun kadosh, indicating something that is set apart to God. But but uh, non-personal things can be set apart to God, such as bowls or furniture. The temple itself is holy. This is why we call it the holy land, not because it is pure, but because it is land that has been set apart by God for the Jewish people. Therefore, it is the set-apart land, and that is why it is called the holy land. So holy Sanctify, all of these English words relate to the same basic uh, Hebrew and Greek words, uh, the kadosh word group and the hagiadzo uh, word, word, word group. Now, when we talk about sanctification, there are three uh, stages of sanctification. We refer to the first one as positional sanctification, that is to be freed from the penalty of sin. It happens at an instant in time when a person trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior. They receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and are declared justified. Phase two is what we have been talking about in terms of being a slave of Christ. It is referred to as progressive or I prefer experiential sanctification. It is the experience of our growth Whereas we walk by means of the Spirit in fellowship, in obedience to the Word God, the Holy Spirit produces spiritual growth and spiritual fruit in our life, and we grow towards spiritual maturity. It is primarily the responsibility of God, the Holy Spirit, to work in us in terms of spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And then ultimate or final sanctification takes place when we are uh, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. No longer do we have a sin nature. We're freed from the sin nature, and we are are glorified. Now we'll stop here and come back next time to get into the doctrine of sanctification. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to recognize that positionally, we have all been made slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are only two options, to be a slave of Christ or a slave of our sin nature. And so the focus in our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, our experiential sanctification is for us to learn to be 
obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ through his word and to become uh, an experiential slave of Christ and to grow towards spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied this this class and that uh, God the Holy Spirit would make it very clear to each of us how we need to apply these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.